The following episode contains content that some may find disturbing. The name Jack the Ripper is known far and wide, and he is considered one of the most brutal and infamous serial killers of all time. How much about the Whitechapel murders do you truly know, and will his identity ever be discovered? This is Something Strange. Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel Murders. In 2008 in the UK, Derek Brown was sentenced to life with a minimum term of 30 years in prison for the murders of Xiao Mei Guo and Bonnie Barrett. Xiao and Bonnie were young mothers and on different occasions he picked them both up at Whitechapel, London. Once arrested, the police discovered that he had assembled a murder kit, which included a bone saw, steam cleaner and waterproof sheeting. Beyond this murder kit, Derek Brown also put a lot of thought and effort into evading the police, which included stripping the walls and pulling up the carpets in his apartment where the women were killed in an attempt to rid his apartment of evidence. The bodies of the women were never found, but police suspect that they were both dismembered and disposed of. Brown showed no remorse. One of his motives is that he wanted to be famous, and more specifically, he was trying to emulate a killer that gripped Whitechapel 120 years previously. The year is 1888 London. During the latter part of the 19th century, London was going through a phase of massive prosperity, building on from the incredible momentum the Industrial Revolution growth of the 18th century had brought to the city. Seen as a major financial centre, London's strengths were with shipping insurance, stock brokerage and banking. However, though parts of the city, especially the West End, were seeing massive benefits to this financial boom, not every area in London reaped those rewards. Compared to the West End, the East End was a completely different story. In 1850, playwright and journalist Henry Mayhew visited the East End of London and noted his observations. He said, Roads were unmade, often mere alleys, houses small without foundations, subdivided and often around unpaved courts. An almost total lack of drainage and sewerage was made worse by the ponds formed by excavation of brick earth. Pigs and cows and backyards, noxious trades like boiling tripe, melting tallow and preparing cat's meat and slaughterhouses, dust heaps and lakes of putrefying night soil added to the filth. Housing over 900,000 people the vast majority of people lived in cramped, filthy slums, while others were completely homeless, which at times included entire families left to the streets to fight for survival. Surviving by any means necessary, 
crime and prostitution were rife. And the streets were a very unsafe place, be it day or night. Needless to say, it seemed by the latter part of the 19th century, the east of London was simply left to rot, left behind by a city that was rapidly marching into a bright future without it. So perhaps it's no surprise that the East End, and specifically the Whitechapel district of London, is where an infamous killer would emerge out of the shadows during the twilight of the 19th century that would shock not just London or the United Kingdom, but rather the entire world with his brutal slayings. There are five canonical Ripper victims. These are five victims that the vast majority of historians and investigators agree that were killed by Jack the Ripper. There are also non-canonical victims, but whether these women were killed by Jack the Ripper is still debated to this day. All victims of Jack the Ripper were prostitutes, and he preyed on them specifically. The reason behind this is still unknown. Born in 1845, Mary Ann Nichols was the second of three children to Edward Walker, a locksmith and a blacksmith, and Caroline Webb, a laundress. At age 18, Nichols, who was known as Polly to her friends, married a printer's machinist named William Nichols. They had five children together, but due to issues within their marriage, they separated, with William taking four of his children to live with him near Old Kent Road. After the separation, Nichols was arrested on various charges, including disorderly conduct, drunkenness, and prostitution. However, between the years 1881 and 1887, not much is known about her whereabouts. But what is known is that she earned a living by cleaning and through prostitution. On the night of August 26th, Nichols arrived at a lodging house to spend the night. Though she had three customers that very day, she didn't have enough money for a room. However, the owner of the lodging house noted that she was confident she could find a fourth customer before the night was out, which would pay for the room. She was last seen just outside the lodging house, bartering with a potential customer. This man was most likely her killer. At 3.40 a.m., a carman named Charles Allen Cross came upon what he believed to be a tarpaulin laying on the ground, just outside a gated stable entrance in Buck's Row. However, as Cross drew nearer to the shadowy and formless object, he soon realized that what lay before him was a human body. It was Nichols. Her eyes were wide open, her legs straight, her skirt had been pulled up above her knees, with her hand reaching out and touching the gate to the stable entrance. Her body was still warm to the touch, and later it would be determined that at the point when she was discovered, she would only have been dead 30 minutes. Upon examination, the full extent of Nichols' injuries came to light. Her throat had been slashed left to right twice. And it was cut so deep and so viciously that the wound reached back as far as her vertebral column, meaning that Nichols was almost beheaded. 
Furthermore, bruises were found on the sides of her face, and her abdomen was mutilated to the point where her bells were protruding through these horrific wounds. No organs were removed from Nichols. It was later determined that she was probably facing her attacker, and he would have had to put his hand over her mouth and then slashed her throat. Death would have been instantaneous, after which the killer took approximately five minutes to further mutilate her body. The murder shocked London, but soon after the details of Nichols' horrific murder were known, the press descended upon the story. At this time in London, the first ever election for the London County Council was taking place. And in a bid to capitalise on current events and perhaps sway some voters, the newspapers The Star and the Pall Mall Gazette focused their efforts on producing newspaper stories and front covers that arguably heightened tensions around the East End. Featuring stories about the declining social conditions in the area, to grisly drawings depicting the injuries inflicted to Nichols, this began the media's fascination with the killer, who at that point was known as the Whitechapel Murderer. Born in 1840, Eliza Ann Chapman, also known as Annie Chapman, was the first of five children to root Chapman and soldier George Smith. At age 29, Chapman married John James Chapman, a relation of her mother. The couple had three children, one of which passed away at the age of 12 due to meningitis. Though Chapman's life was plagued by bouts of alcoholism, she was constantly trying to kick the habit and put it behind her. However, after this traumatic point in her life, both her and her husband retreated into excessive alcoholism. This eventually led to the dissolving of their marriage, after which Chapman relocated to Whitechapel. Though she was still receiving a weekly allowance from her ex-husband, when those payments abruptly stopped, she then discovered that he had died of alcohol-related issues. It's at this point in which Chapman resorted to prostitution in order to get by on the streets of London. The events that led to Chapman's death were near identical as to what happened to Nichols previously. On the dark and rainy night of September 8, Chapman was kicked out of a lodging house for not being able to pay for her bed. She decided to try and earn money to pay for the bed by seeking out one more client. At an unspecified time in the early hours of the morning, a woman observed her speaking to a man outside the lodging house. The man she was speaking to was said to have dark hair and he was wearing a long dark coat and a brown low-crowned felt hat. Chapman and the unknown man walked into the gloomy night. At 5.15am, tenant Albury Gadosh of 27 Hanbury Street heard a woman saying, no, no, followed by the sound of someone falling against a fence that divided the backyards of 27 and 29 Hanbury Street. Kadosh did not investigate the sound he heard, assuming it was one of the many noises and scuffles heard on the streets of Whitechapel. At precisely 6am, Chapman's body was found by a resident of 29 
Hanbury Street. Chapman's throat had been slashed so excessively that a vertebral column had marks etched onto it. She had been disemboweled, with a sizable amount of her skin being draped across her left shoulder. On her right shoulder was her small intestines. Parts of her uterus and bladder were completely missing, and due to the fact that her tongue was protruding from her teeth and lips, it is believed that she was choked with a piece of cloth before having her throat cut. After the murder of Annie Chapman, fear had hit fever pitch in London. With massive amounts of pressure now being leveled at the police, manpower was increased on the streets, as seemingly the only way to catch the killer would be to catch them in the act. And that would prove a near impossible feat. On September 29th, a letter was forwarded to Scotland Yard. The letter was allegedly from the killer, known as the Dear Boss Letter. The letter is believed to be authentic. Dear Boss, I kept behind the police to call me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron got me real fits. I am down on O's and I shan't quit ripping until I get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and won't start again. You will soon hear of me and my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. <laughs> the next job I do shall clip a lady's ears off and send it to police officers just for jollies, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work and give it out straight. My knife is so nice and sharp. I want to get to work straight away if I'll get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before. I got all the red ink off my hands, cause no luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. <laughs> And with that letter, the name Jack the Ripper was born. Born in 1842, Elizabeth Stride grew up in Storma Tumlade, a small rural town west of Gothenburg, Sweden. She was the second of four children to farmer Gustag Eriksson and Bita Karlsdotter. Unlike all of the other victims of Jack the Ripper, Stride became a prostitute much earlier in life, as she was arrested in Gothenburg at age 22 for this charge. In 1866, she relocated to London, and after learning both English and Yiddish, she quickly acclimatized to life in London as the city became her new home. On the night of September 30th, Stride was last seen by various acquaintances spending time with a number of different men, who were most likely clients of hers. At approximately 12.34am, 
A dock worker claims he saw her speaking to a man near the corner of Burner Street. The man wore a long, dark coat. Stride was heard turning down his advances. Then, at 1am, a steward of the International Working Men's Educational Club came across Stride's body adjacent to Dutfield's yard. When she was found, her body was still slightly warm to the touch and a large gash across her neck was still pumping blood, suggesting that the killer had just very recently fled the scene. A noticeable difference compared to previous murders is that Stride was not disemboweled, and the scene of her murder, though absolutely horrific, wasn't as extreme as what befell Nichols and Chapman. However, what the police were soon to understand is that the Ripper may have intended to inflict this on Stride's body, but instead got spooked and fled the scene. This would soon become apparent, as within an hour of Stride being murdered, the Ripper would strike again, but this time ensuring that his macabre showmanship was in full effect. Born in 1842, Catherine Eddowes grew up in Wolverhampton and was the sixth of 12 children to tin plate worker George Eddowes and his wife, Catherine Evans, who worked at the Peacock Hotel as a cook. By 1857, aged just 15, Eddowes had lost both her parents, and she and three of her siblings spent time as orphans in the Bermondsey workhouse. After having trouble keeping down a job and working in a number of different roles, Eddowes eventually relocated to London in 1868, where she lived in Westminster with her partner, Thomas Conway, with whom she had three children. However, life in London with Conway didn't become the fairy tale she had previously envisioned, as the couple were known to constantly get into physical altercations and it was commonplace for Eddowes to be seen with a black eye and other evidence of her abusive relationship. In 1880, Eddowes would leave her husband after she met John Kelly, a fruit salesman. Sleeping rough at times and making money wherever she could, Eddowes also turned to prostitution to make ends meet. At 1.35am, a mere 35 minutes after Elizabeth Stride's body had been found with her throat slashed, Eddowes was last seen in a narrow walkway called Church Passage by three witnesses. She was speaking to a man of medium build, who wore a long, dark coat, a grey peaked cloth cap and a neckerchief. When Eddowes was seen by these three witnesses, nothing seemed to be amiss, and they all thought nothing of it. At 1.44am, a policeman on his beat found the body of Eddowes. With her head resting on a coal hole, her throat had been cut wide open. Her clothes had been pulled up above her abdomen, and exactly like Nichols and Chapman, Eddowes had been disemboweled with her intestines pulled out of her body and draped over her right shoulder, with a sliced off piece of her intestines being placed between her body and her left arm. 
Edo's face had also been mutilated, which was especially noticeable after the body had been washed in post-mortem, and which detailed that both of her eyelids had been sliced. There was a deep cut extending from the bridge of her nose down to the side of her jaw. The tip of her nose had been cut off, and her lip and gum had been cut into. Furthermore, her earlobe had been cut straight through, a direct reference to what was stated in the Dear Boss letter. With two murders now occurring in one night in different areas protected by different authorities, the police presence after the death of Edo spread far and wide, as both the Metropolitan Police and also the City of London Police were out in full force, searching for Jack the Ripper. On October 1st, a postcard allegedly from Jack the Ripper was received by the Central News Agency of London, known as the Saucy Jack Postcard. It reads, I was not cutting the old boss when I gave you the tip. You will hear about Saucy Jackie's work tomorrow double event this time. Number one squealed a bit, couldn't finish straight off. <sighs> Not the time to get ears for police. Thanks for keeping the last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. At this point, the public, now gripped in fear about when Jack the Ripper would strike next, resorted to vigilantism to essentially do the job the police of London seemingly couldn't achieve. With the Whitechapel vigilante community receiving more and more attention, George Lusk, the founder of the group, suddenly found himself being contacted by Jack the Ripper himself. On October 15th, Lusk received a letter from Jack the Ripper. It reads, From you, Mr. Lusk, Sir, I'll send you half the kidney I took from one woman and preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate it. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife to tuck it out. If you only wait a little while longer. Sign. Catch me if you can, Mr. Lusk. In 2008, a forensic linguistic analyst found that there is evidence to show that the writer of the Saucy Jack letter was the same writer as the Dear Boss letter. With Eddowes and Stride being slain in one night, the public assumed that they had seen the peak of the Ripper's barbarism. But all of that was about to change with the shocking and bloody murder of the next victim that would ultimately be the disturbing crescendo to the story of Jack the Ripper. Born in 1863, little is known about the life of Mary Jane Kelly. Many of the details that are known about her early life were details passed on by acquaintances and friends, as almost no official documentation exists about her. These allegedly true details include her being born in Limerick in Ireland, her being from a wealthy family, her parents disowning her, and Kelly being one of at least eight siblings. In 1884, she relocated to London, and after working as a tobacconist briefly, 
Kelly eventually found herself working at a high-end brothel in the wealthy West End of London, a stark difference to life in the East End. Kelly was one of the more popular girls at the brothel and earned well, but after getting into a dispute with a prostitution procurer, her life took a rapid decline, as she soon found herself in the East End of London, doing her best to scrape by. By early 1888, Kelly was renting a room at 13 Miller's Court. It was a simple room and neighbours knew her as a friendly face when sober, but mean and loud when drunk, which was happening more and more frequently as time passed. Kelly was last seen in the company of a man who allegedly made an effort to hide his face when walking past George Hutchinson, an unemployed labourer who knew Kelly. Hutchinson was suspicious of the man and gave a detailed description to the police after the murder. However, as Kelly seemed to be comfortable around a stranger at the time, Hutchinson shrugged off the feeling that something was off. Kelly and the stranger went to her room. As she always did when she brought a client to her room, she could be heard singing the song A Violet From My Mother's Grave as she drew her curtains. On the morning of November 9th, Kelly's landlord assistant came to her room to collect rent as due to her rampant alcoholism, she was six weeks behind rent. There was no answer when he knocked on her door, so he resorted to looking through her window in an attempt to contact Kelly. When he looked through the window, the assistant saw a scene more horrific, more brutal and more shocking than anyone could ever thought was possible. The mutilation inflicted on Kelly was far more extreme than anything the police had seen from the Ripper previously. Suspected to have been dead for 12 hours before she was discovered, wounds were extensive and grisly, as the Ripper was in a location where he would not be disturbed. Simply put, the Ripper had all the time he needed to enact his ultimate murder fantasy. Kelly's body lay naked on the bed. Her hands were down by her side and her legs were wide apart. The flesh from her abdomen had been removed and the entire abdominal cavity had been completely pulled out of her body. The entire flesh from her thighs had been removed, revealing muscle and bone. Her breasts were cut off so deeply that it visibly revealed her thorax. Her arms were hacked with multiple gashes, and her face was mutilated beyond recognition. Her nose, cheeks, eyebrows, and ears were partly removed, and her lips were cut in various incisions in different directions. Her buttocks and calf muscles also had gashes and cuts across them in different directions. Her uterus, spleen, kidneys, and heart had been removed. Her throat had been slashed, and like all other Ripper victims, it was so deep that the wound almost beheaded Kelly. However, this wound was even more extreme, as the fifth and sixth vertebrae had been deeply notched by the Ripper's blade. The removed parts of her body were laid in specific locations of the murder scene. Her uterus, kidneys and one breast were placed under her head, with Kelly's other breast being placed under her right foot. 
the large amounts of flesh that had been removed from her thighs and abdomen were placed on a nearby table. Kelly's heart was not found at the crime scene. The bed was completely soaked in blood. Police believed that Kelly died when her throat was slashed, with all of the excessive mutilation inflicted after death. After these five slayings, the Ripper never struck again. During and since the time of the murders, over 100 suspects have been profiled and analysed as men who may have been Jack the Ripper. Many have compelling cases, but none of them hit the mark, and there is certainly no undeniable proof pointing at any one of those suspects. All kinds of theories exist about who Jack the Ripper was and what happened to him. Some believe he died of an illness shortly after the murder of Mary Ann Kelly. Some think he simply decided to stop after five murders, as if he finally achieved some kind of dark satisfaction. While some have theorized that the Ripper moved to New York City, to which they point to the murder of prostitute Carrie Brown as proof. Unless a verifiable confession letter was discovered, the chances of solving the mystery of who Jack the Ripper was is near impossible now. His identity and motive will likely remain a mystery forever. In 1891, the file had been closed, and though the city of London would still experience horrors, it was nothing quite like the sheer bloodthirsty brutality Jack the Ripper inflicted on the lives of five innocent women and fear he spread throughout the city of London between August and November in 1888. What was the identity of the man known as Jack the Ripper that closed the curtain on the 19th century in London? And with Derek Brown now off the streets, will we ever see another disturbed individual take up the mantle of Jack the Ripper? This has been Something Strange. Thank you for listening to Something Strange. Please consider subscribing and rating Something Strange wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at A Strange Pod. That is at A Strange Pod. If you'd like to reach out directly for feedback, suggestions, or even a question, please email somethingstrangepod at gmail.com. Something Strange is written, edited, and presented by me, Dennis Murphy.